Good morning. It's uh, I always say that, but I never ask, wait for any response. Good morning. It's a privilege to be here. It's a really good, really amazing privilege to see other people in real life, to hear music again in real life. So thank you to the music team, and thank you to the folks working behind the scenes, doing all of the things that I have no idea what they're doing, but I'm sure glad for them. Thank you, Judy, for singing for us. It was a real good blessing. I was thinking... uh, while the music was going on, that, you know, a year and a half ago when we were in here, while we were singing, I would always be super self-conscious about singing too loud, or anyone that knows me knows that I, I, I can do some things, but singing isn't one of them. But I think there's going to be a lot of people like me when we're able to gather again who, who just won't care. So for, you can prepare yourself for that. Um. Father, we thank you for your love for us and your grace. We thank you for being with us. We thank you for your presence in us and among us. We thank you for the privilege it is to look into your word together. We trust that you're honored. We trust that this is a valuable part of our worship. I pray that you would speak through me, and I pray that anything that I may say that might not be true or valuable for the building up of your people, that it would be forgotten. Amen. So this has been a, an interesting time to be here, to be, to be in Canada. It's been a really painful and really difficult four or five weeks, especially for Indigenous people. Lots of tensions have been mounting and lots of pain and anger. And, and we saw a glimpse into that this last week on Canada Day. And it's been a real difficult time for people to process. And a lot of people have been asking, what's, what's our response? How do we respond? How can we as, people have asked, how can we as non-Indigenous people respond? And I'm reminded of this one interaction I had with a mentor of mine a survivor of residential school and well-respected elder. And he told me that, you know, Josh, if, if the people had just loved me, maybe they would have been fruitful. If they had just loved me, they wouldn't have had to force me to try and become like them. If they had just loved us, if they had just been like Jesus, then they wouldn't have had to do the things they did to us. I would have wanted to become like them. And so I'm reminded of a text from John 15, 1 to 8, or actually all of John 15, but we'll, yeah, 1 to 8. Before we read the text, I, I believe it's always valuable to kind of take a big picture of, 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 the, of it. And so John is written in the New Testament. That means it's written after the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus. And John gives his purpose for writing, too. In John 20, 30 to 31, he says he writes that all might believe, that they might believe Jesus is who he said he was. And there's a really neat uh, verse in 21, 25. John writes that 
Jesus did many other things too in that if everything was written down that there wouldn't even be enough books in the whole world to contain all that Jesus did or said. And so if you can imagine just a, a vast library of every book in the world that actually recorded Jesus' life and what he said and what he taught and how he lived. And then you reduced all of that to the very most important things. You get the book of John. Sort of. It's kind of how interesting that he says that in 25. One of the reoccurring Scenes from John is a conflict between the Jewish religious leaders and Jesus. People who had been placing their entire hope and their entire uh, lives in the fact that they were the ancestral and ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. And so they take issue with Jesus because Jesus seems to live in a different way. And John 15 specifically is a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. It's a conversation that happens sometime between the Last Supper and the garden where Jesus is arrested. And perhaps it's happening en route from the place, the location where they are having the Last Supper and the garden where Jesus will be handed over and betrayed. And so I'll read the text this morning. I'm reading from the NIV, but whatever you have is probably fine. John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." And right off the start, I, I, I must acknowledge that over the last 2,000 years, thousands of sermons have been preached on this text. And I suspect many more will, will continue in the time to come. And so there's no way that we can address all of these things in here. And so we're just going to look at a couple of them. And Pastor Garth just left. I think someone came in. So it's a good time to say, if there's any questions, feel free to direct them to Pastor Garth after. Anyways, we'll, we'll, move, <laughs> we'll move on. So Jesus begins with saying, I am the true vine. And I think sometimes when we read this, I know when I read this as a, you know, as a contemporary English reader, I know there's things that I miss over that the original audience would not have skipped over. And so I think it's always a valuable exercise, a valuable question to ask is, how did the first people hear this or how did the first people read this? And so actually, the very first phrase that Jesus uses, I am, is an incredibly important term, especially for, for Jewish people. In fact, these are very, this very term is what gets Jesus in trouble with the Pharisees and, and uh, religious leaders. In 858, there's a scene where Jesus, or the people are, are debating with Jesus and saying, 
Well, you know, we're the ancestors of, of Abraham. And Jesus replies to them, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And at this, the, the religious leaders, they try and, and stone him immediately. See, these, this phrase, I am, is a very powerful phrase, and it's rooted deeply in the history of Israel. And I, I believe to really get a better glimpse of it, let's flip to Exodus chapter 3. While, while Moses is in the desert of Midian, after he's left Egypt, and, and while God commissions him to go back to Egypt, he encounters God at the burning bush. And so from chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 13, this is what it says. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And Jesus uses this phrase a number of times in the book of John. A number of times he says, I am. In 635, he says, I am the bread of life. In 812, he says, I am the light of the world. In 10, 11, and 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. In eleven twenty-five, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And in 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's also a really interesting scene in chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. While Jesus is in the garden with his disciples and Judas comes, and while he's about to be handed over to the, to the soldiers and, the, and the, his betrayer, Jesus asks them, who is it that you're looking for? And the soldiers say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replies, he says, I am he. And at this, the soldiers and everyone who came to confront him drew back with their faces to the ground. Just a really powerful scene that demonstrates just how uh, powerful and loaded this phrase is, I am. You see, when Jesus was using the phrase, when he was using this title, he was acknowledging himself, he was confessing himself to be God. He was confessing himself to be deity. And John records this a number of times already. In John 1.1, 1, 1, he, he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or in 1.18, John writes, he says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made, known, made him known. Whoops. I knew that would happen. It, <clears throat> so when Jesus, or John makes this, uh, he uses this again. He's, he, he says this again in chapter 518 and 1130. All declaring Jesus to be God himself. And the next, next few words are also valuable. He says the true vine. And again, to understand this, we must look back to the Old Testament. Places like Psalm 80 or Isaiah 5 or Ezekiel 19. 
In all of these places, Israel is referred to as, as a vine or a vineyard. You see, it was God's plan from the very beginning to use Israel to demonstrate to the nations what it looked like to be a people of God, what it looked like to be in relationship with God. See, it was God's plan that the nation of Israel would bear fruit, fruit of other nations coming to worship and know and be in relationship with the one true God. However, Israel failed. They were fruitless in this. And so we know the story, but, but God became human and was born to the nation of Israel. He came as an Israelite, as, an, as a Jew, to finally accomplish God's plan for Israel from the beginning. That all nations be given an invitation to worship and follow him. See, God's plan always included all the nations of the earth and not just the ethnic nation of Israel. And yet this is what the Jewish religious leaders clung to. They clung to the fact that they were the physical, the actual genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, it, 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 it challenges them and it threatens them. And Jesus also says here, he says, I am the true vine. And a number of times he says, remain in me. He says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And this word remain can mean a number of things. It can mean to stand with. It can mean to continue with. It can mean endure. Or it can mean abide. See, Jesus is instructing his disciples here that if you want to bear fruit, if you want to be fruitful, that in order to be fruitful, you have to abide in me. You have to continue in me. And it's really, it's really fantastic, and it's really incredible, but Jesus, he, he responds. He says, actually, if you remain in me, then I'll, I'll remain in you. He says, if you keep my words, my words will remain in you also. So it's not just that the followers of Jesus are abiding in Jesus, but it's that Jesus is abiding in them too. Jesus goes on to say that my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And so in this, in this picture, Jesus, he says that the Father is the gardener, and the gardener is the one who provides, protects, and takes care of his, his vineyard, his crop. And there's two types of cutting that Jesus he acknowledges here. One is a cutting off of, of fruitless branches. And that represents people who have not remained in Jesus, who don't abide in Jesus, who don't stand, endure, or continue with Jesus. And there's another type of pruning that he mentions, and that's or cutting, and that's pruning. And he says that every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear more fruit. And we don't have a lot of vineyards here, and I, so I needed to do some research on what, what, this, what does this even mean. And so what I found was really quite fascinating is that in this part of the world and, and during the time that Jesus lived and, and still in modern day areas where they have vineyards and grow grapes, what the vineyard keeper will do at the end of the season is they'll cut back, they'll prune the grapevine 
And they'll prune it as much as 80%. What I discovered or what I learned is all of the branches from a grapevine or all of the, all of the vines that bore grapes in this year, they won't bear fruit next year. But new branches will grow from the old branches and only grapes will grow on the new branches. And yet the grapevine will require, or those, the branches from last year will still require all the same energy and nutrition and, and they'll, they'll uh, what will happen is the grapes, the new grapes coming will be smaller and less. And so the vineyard keeper will come and they'll prune off all of the branches that did bear fruit so that the next year the grapevine can only focus on growing fruit and not sustaining old branches. And so this type of pruning is good and healthy. But sometimes for us in our lives it can be a little bit painful. When God convicts us or when a brother or sister in the Lord approaches us and, and perhaps points out things in our lives that aren't very fruitful. Or perhaps we're clinging on to things or modes or methods of things that used to be fruitful, but they aren't anymore. And so there's a, a wonderful thing that God does here, and he, he does it for his own glory. It says in verse 8, For his own glory, God will ensure that his, the people remaining in him will remain fruitful by pruning off the things in their lives that no longer bear fruit. And we talk a lot about fruit here. And there's three, at least three fruits mentioned. One of them is prayer in verse 7. One is obedience in verse 10. And one is joy in verse 11. I, I know we, we only read eight verses, but there's some fruit mentioned here. And I, I think we need to pause here. See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they, they, they thought that the condition to be right with God was first to bear fruit, was to be obedient and was to follow all the commands. And then if you did that, then God was going to love them or accept them or use them. And we've seen that same method and those same systems worked out all throughout church history where people, uh, people thought their good works were what God required of them or what God demanded of them in order to be right with him. And of course, as we've all heard in the recent weeks the atrocities committed at residential schools where people were doing this exact thing. Forcing, and su- forcing people into submission, forcing people to go through the actions as if converting people is some type of fruit that, that God desired. And of course it's not. And in fact, I'm convinced that this whole text here has really nothing to do or very little to do with us bearing fruit. It, it seems to say that fruit is a natural product of remaining in Christ. Jesus says himself here, he says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And he says again in verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. I think sometimes we kind of get distracted with the idea of bearing fruit, the idea of doing good things. And yet the text seems to indicate that the priority is to remain connected to Jesus. The priority is to remain abiding in him, remaining in him. 
If you consider that in John 1, 1, where he records that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that all things were made through him. Consider that the creator of the universe also remains inside people who remain in him. And so how could any, how could any response happen? How could anything, uh, how could there be any other product than fruit being born from those people? And uh, I, I know that sometimes we, all right, I know I do, I, I, a lot of times when people preach uh, in any context, we, we, we don't really give a lot of tangible things that can be done. And so I, I think one tangible thing, and if we look through the next few verses here, to the end of verse 17, Jesus speaks a lot about love. In these eight verses, love is mentioned eight times. And he, he mentions two times that his command, what his command is. He says, my command is to love each other as I have loved you. And he closes off with saying, this is my command, love each other. And if we remember that Jesus was speaking to his disciples, his followers in a group, I'm convinced that one of the ways that we can remain connected to Jesus is by remaining connected to each other. By loving each other. As my friend and mentor mentioned, that if the people had loved, then it would have been enough. If the people had loved, perhaps some of their fruits would have been evident. If they had loved, then I would have wanted what they had. And so I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that one of the most valuable ways that we can make an impact and one of the most valuable ways we can bear fruit and one of the most valuable ways we can respond to a, to a world that's in pain and in, in, in anger is, is actually by loving each other here, inside of the family of God. If we're loving each other here, then the, it's only natural that that will spill out into the people of the world, into the nations of the world. And if we hold, and if we trust that Jesus is speaking the truth, that those who remain in him will bear fruits, then I'm convinced that by remaining connected to each other and loving each other is one of the first and most effective responses to the hurt that is outside of our walls and outside of our homes. And so, one, I think one tangible thing that, could, that we can do as a body and this week and this month is to look for ways that we can love each other. And so I, I was thinking one practical thing is ever, most people probably have a church directory. If you don't, you can get an electronic one. And, um, and if you're not in the church directory, then uh, send, a, send an email to the church and we'll, we'll make sure to get your name on a, on a prayer list. But for those of you who have access to one, I would really encourage you to open it up and find the people that are around your picture and pray for them this week. It doesn't matter if you don't know them or you haven't talked to them. Pray for them this week. And then I would even take it one step further. I would, I would encourage you, and 
I'm, I'm afraid someone might hold me accountable to this. Like, Josh, did you do this? But, but I'll try too. Uh, this week, you know, pray for those people, but then why don't you send someone a message? Why don't you give someone a phone call from that list and tell them, hey, that you're praying for them? This last week, a number of people did that for me. They called and they acknowledged the pain that, that is happening. And it was a real, real blessing for me. And so I'd encourage you to all to do the same. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for the invitation to worship you. And Father, we, we pray that you would give us the courage and the endurance to remain in you, to connect it to you. And we trust that you have a plan to bear fruit through our lives. Give us the courage to do this. Amen.